Hey, today is a really great broadcast. Uh, Pat tells me that it includes frivolity, uh, which I don't even know what that is, but it's it is included in today's podcast. We spend um, some time with a woman who has written the book about how small businesses are getting screwed and how the little guy is losing his ability to actually control his life and grow wealth. You don't want to miss this uh, uh, today's uh, today's episode. Also, we we tell you about a miracle. A woman in a woman's prison in California has had. I guess sex with another woman who was just transferred, yes, from the from the male facility because, well, she identifies as a woman, so she's a woman, and the other woman is sex is now pregnant. We, I mean, what would explain that? We just don't know, and the answer to what we need to do it comes from Ben and Jerry's, and I'll tell you that on today's podcast. to you a little bit about what's happening on our streets first in minneapolis uh they are uh, looked at all of the donations that are coming from uh you know local citizens uh to defund the police to support that movement and most of the uh donations uh, coming from out of state which is weird and moveon.org is providing uh, a lot of that money who is funding all of this where who why is moveon.org doing this uh and where do they get their money for this and what is their intent i want to show you something that just happened in seattle um this is um this is a video of a of a kid who goes by caliber visuals online don't know his name he's a freelance photographer he's 22 years old he was in the Mount Baker section of uh, Seattle. Do we have the video? Here he is. Watch this, Pat. He's out on the street. Uh, there he's walking, and he sees another guy coming up to him, uh, yeah. and he stops, and it, the guy, he puts his hand out. They shake hands, and then the guy won't let him loose, and then he just starts he puts him down on the ground, throws him down on the ground violently, and then just starts kicking him in the head. And I mean, mm -hmm. full force, stomping on his head and then kicking him until he's down. Then he kicks him a second time and then, boom, one last time. Kicks him unconscious. Yeah. Uh, the kid is still uh, uh, coughing up blood today. He was, mm. uh, it was reported to police somebody was watching this. Mm. so disturbing but so far they don't they haven't arrested anyone that is that's what you have in seattle now let me show you a video from this weekend uh a video in portland uh that happened as a group of christians were gathered to pray on the waterfront and antifa showed up and they showed up dressed in black, uh, and uh, they were confronting the worshipers. Do we have to have the video? There it is. 
Now look how many are dressed in black. Peace to you in Jesus' name. Look at this. They're just asking for peace. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. So look at all of the bastards in the name of Jesus. Amen. So they they threw a flash bomb into the group of kids who were out there. Um, they started saying all th- sorts of things and following it in Je- in the name of Jesus, because that's what the the people were. Uh, the Christians were saying um, yeah. it, it is it is really bad. By the way, police were there. They turned on the siren, but it had absolutely no impact on Antifa. Why would it? They're not afraid of the police. They know they're not mm-hmm. going to do anything. And the police did nothing. Uh, there was uh, no response from the police. No arrests made. Uh, and they said the police said nobody reported any crime that we're aware of. So what's happening to us? What's happening to us? Well, if you really want to know, there is uh, a a report out that I think everyone should read and no one is reporting on it. It is a report by the Major Cities Chiefs Association. This is a network of police chiefs all over the United States. And uh, they surveyed all of the police chiefs for the nature of the 2020 riots. Now, this has just come out, so you can understand why nobody's talking about it. And when I say just came out, it came out in October. But it absolutely takes apart everything, the media, everything that uh, the uh, the clowns in Washington, D.C. are trying to uh, perpetrate and say that we are violent and that was the worst attack on, on America, you know, and our liberty since the Civil War. No. Why won't they look into the other protests? Well, we know why. One reason is because they helped fund it. They helped enable it. Uh, Kamala Harris put bail money up for all of these people. Have you seen anybody on the right putting bail money up? No. I haven't. No. I am. Kamala Harris did. So what do you find? Well, in this chief's report, they found clear evidence of nationwide coordination for violent protests. I want to, in fact, I want to read right from the report on uh, on what they found, because it is it's interesting about the weapons, about, uh, you know, what the percentages were of violent and nonviolent. Because remember, that's what we're supposed to believe, that this was all really nonviolent, nonviolent. Well, was it? The weekend of May 29th to the following Monday, June 1st, was by far the most violent for any major city law enforcement agencies. These events had thousands of people in attendance, including groups with suspected violent extremist ideologies. Prepared and coordinated resistance was reported by some agencies and similar tactics, such as the use of arson, looting, barricades, caravans, and specific types of weapons were seen in major cities nationwide. 
protesters seem to coordinate their movements and actions on these days as if the as uh, if the violence and tactics were pre-planned. For example, across the U.S., major city law enforcement agencies reported peaceful protests beginning in the early to late afternoon and violence beginning once it became dark. The report confirms the presence of the far left violent extremists and notes that 78 percent of surveyed um, police agencies identified such actors among the protests. 51 percent of agencies also identified far right uh, actors at some protests. Unfortunately, the report offers no details that would let analysts examine how the authors determined violent actors' ideological tendencies. No specifics are included in the report. Uh, this is this is incredible that this report is even out there. That it clearly shows. Do you know how many people were arrested during those protests for felonies? How many people were arrested for felonies? Can you guess? Mm. For felonies? For felonies. (laughs) None. 2,735 total number of arrests that were for felony charges. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Total number of persons arrested, 16,241. How many have been arrested for wow. Washington, D.C.? And they're not felony charges. Only no, a couple almost are, all misdemeanors. Yeah. I, I think it's in the 400 range. Yeah. yeah. Most misdemeanors, mm-hmm. some felonies. Mm-hmm. 2,735. The highest number of felony arrests for a single police uh, troop in a single city was 639 people arrested for felonies. Wow. For felonies. I didn't hear that. No, I didn't either. The the agencies that found uh, protesters with violent far left ideologies, 78 percent, 78 percent. If you look at how many people encountered, how many agencies encountered people that were not from the town? So out of all the protests, how many how many police officers said this group over here? They're not even from around here. They're bust in. No, oh, I bet a lot. 90%. Yeah. How many were paid to be there? I'm going to say a lot again. 29%. That's a pretty good percentage. Uh, who's paying? Who's paying? Yeah, because we were told that was ridiculous. Oh, yeah, no one was being paid. Of course. These are grassroots protests. Mm-hmm. Are they? Are they now? Are huh. they? Um, if you want to look this up, I think it's really important. The Major Cities Chief Association, the Intelligence Commanders Group, uh, and it is the report on the 2020 protests and civil unrest. It is, it is amazing to read. Amazing to read. How many are peaceful? How many are violent? Mostly peaceful? Nope. No, not mostly peaceful. Not mostly peaceful. What kind of uh, what kind of weapons did they have? It's all in this report. How many are belonging to some organization like an Antifa? 
All of it is in this report. Why is it the media is not interested? More importantly, why is the federal government not interested in this at all? But remember, we owe our lives to the policemen. That's what Joe Biden said. We owe everything to the policemen. Then maybe we Hmm. should read what the police are saying in their own reports. Hmm. I wonder why we're not. The best of the Glenn Beck program. My surgeon told me uh, last week I've been having face surgery because of cancer on my face. And he said to me uh, last week, I think we're going to get to know each other quite well. And he called over the weekend. He said, I got to go back in. I'm like, oh, you ready for another round? Okay, bring it on, brother. Let's see how your face looks after this round. Um, But uh, I feel the same way without the scalpel, the knife or the fight uh, or the cancer about Carol Roth. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of her and uh, we will become close friends. She is somebody who I absolutely believe gets it on what's coming our way. And a voice that needs to be heard. Her her book is called The War on Small Business. She's here with us now. Carol, welcome. Glenn, thanks so much for having me back. And I feel exactly the same way. And I promise uh, I may bring a scalpel, but it's going to be a scalpel on what is going on <laughs> in financial markets yeah. and with the government and decentralization. I had two very powerful Washington, D.C. people write to me this weekend and say, I've never heard of Carol Roth before. She makes everything make sense. So wow. let's talk about let's talk about uh, what you know. Where do you want to start? Well, let's just start with the overarching theme of what's been happening over the last, call it, 16 to 17 months, because we have seen the government use the excuse that one person's plight is going to justify disregarding the rights of others. That's what they've been doing. They have been picking winners and losers. They've been deciding who is essential and who is quote-unquote non-essential, the most horrible thing a government entity could tell a person or a business. And they've been doing this not based on data or on science, but based on political clout and connections. And that has enabled the biggest transfer of wealth that we have ever seen in all of history. And it's been going from Main Street to Wall Street, and the power has been consolidated from the little guys to the big guys in the club. And I feel like that is the overarching thing. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. By picking winners and losers, um... They said, don't go to your Ace Hardware store. Don't go to the local hardware store. Don't go to the, the local paint store, whatever. You've got to go to Home Depot. You, you, they left these giants open while they closed all of the local businesses. Absolutely. They were the, the very first, if you look at the very first mandates that came out, and Ohio led the charge on this, and a bunch of others followed suit, they were all the small entities. They were small retailers, they were gyms, they were restaurants, 
And lo and behold, as you said, the big guys were able to be open. The one that I found just so completely absurd was that you could get your dog's hair and nails groomed, but you personally couldn't get your own hair and nails groomed. And there's no data or science to say that that was okay. And then they doubled down on it. So it wasn't like they did this for the 15 days to slow the spread that we're now like 500 days into. They continued to double down on that messaging. And it got so absurd that at later in the year, as they started doing reopenings, you would have places like New York saying, oh, if you're a bar, you need to serve food. Uh, but, you know, if you have chips, that's not good enough. You need to serve dip with it. So, like, what's the science behind oh the fact that the dip protects you from COVID? So what is your theory on why they did this? So this is all about decentralization versus centralized power. If you think about the economy and you kind of divide it right down the middle, you have half of the economy that is decentralized. It looks a lot more like a free market. This is the small business side. And this before COVID was about 30.2 million small businesses that really exemplified the free markets. The other half of the economy is in the hands of about 10 to 15,000 big businesses. And this goes for GDP and jobs. So if you are a politician who is trying to consolidate power, you're trying to get more under your purview, you're trying to get lobbying dollars, you're trying to get uh, more support maybe for your own campaign, it's much easier for you to deal with 10 or 15,000 big companies than it is to try to corral the 30.2 million small businesses. So I think that that is the driver. But whether you think it's nefarious, intentional, or incompetence, the fact of the matter is that the big government has gotten so big and so out of control that the result would be the same, whether or not the intention is that the small businesses are too small to matter or too hard to control so they the, what's interesting to me is in 2008 they said these banks are too big to fail right. which implied we should make sure we support the smaller banks um to you know get these other banks to a pay for their own mistakes and grow uh, grow the um the the banking sector if you will grow it out not up and in and it would provide some stability but that's exactly the opposite of what they did and they're doing it seems like they're doing that again this time with small businesses yeah i'm so glad you brought this up this is the perfect example so back in 2007 2008 the banks took on too much risk and that created these horrible consequences for the economy not just here in the US but worldwide we all paid the price but as you said they were too big to fail so they got a taxpayer bailout the slap on the risk that they, they the slap on the risk that they got was in the terms of legislation dot frank and they said ha ha we are going to rein in these big banks even though they're too big to fail we, you know, we we've got to make sure that that we make room for the little guy but the effect, the outgrowth of that legislation is it stopped the formation of small and community banks. It put a bunch of smaller players out of business, and it completely killed off small business lending. At the same time, the big businesses 
businesses now had no competition. They also had basically free money from the Fed being pumped into the system. And so the small or the big businesses got bigger and big business lending went through the roof. So what was meant to rein in the big banks actually gave them free reign. And now contrasting that to what's happened this time, small businesses didn't take on too much risk. It's not that that they needed a quote-unquote bailout. They were mandated shut. So compensating them is basically eminent domain. Their property was taken, quote-unquote, for the good of society Mm -hmm. under the Constitution. And so that's not a bailout. That's due compensation. But they were told they were too small. They were told they were non-essential, too small to matter. I, I, I've never been, uh, I'm not a lawsuit guy. I hate lawsuits. But uh, if there is one case that the United States government should uh, be sued and pay out, unfortunately, it would be all of us at the bottom of the ladder that would be paying it. So it would just end up hurting us. But it is for closing all of these businesses you put all of these businesses out of business. You had no right to do it. They only did it under duress. At first, they did it for the first 15 days. Fine. But once they started to say, we're not going to make it, they would try to open up. They couldn't. They went out of business. Whose fault is it? It's not theirs. It's not their fault. It is the federal government's fault. And no, Nobody's even really talking that way. I know. I mean, they're gaslighting us. These are the, the two biggest myths that are out there right now is one that we had these full lockdowns and we were all in this together. We were not all in this together. As we talked about at the top of the hour, the big companies were allowed to continue. Wall Street was propped up. If you had let you know, Amazon get closed down, if you had had Walmart closed down, if you had your local liquor store closed down, if you had let the, the stock market uh, you actually act like a market and, and react to what was happening, this wouldn't have lasted you know, maybe even two weeks, maybe three on the outside. So we were not on this together. And then in terms of the compensation, people will say, oh, well, they got PPP relief. People don't understand that the amount of PPP relief was not only a fraction of the overall like $6.6 trillion that had been spent uh, on relief, but also a fraction of what was needed to shut these businesses down for months and months on end. And the real tragedy of this entire thing, in addition to obviously the subjugation of the rights, is that they wanted to do this right to begin with. They could have done compensation right out of the box to small businesses, let people stay on the payrolls, stay employed. It would have cost them about a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars, I project, based on the numbers. And they could have bought themselves several months to figure out mitigation strategies, but no, that's not what they did. This was not something that uh, they just gathered in the middle of the night and said, we've got to close everything down. This is something either the Fed or the Treasury walked in to the Oval Office when President Trump was the president and said, here's the plan to do it. Can you can you talk to me a little bit about how much of this was just, you know, 
throw spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks and how much of this was was planned and why would you plan something like this? So I always like to follow the markets as a signal. And if you look at what happened at the beginning of 2020 and, uh, you know, kind of January into the beginning of February, you had the stock markets hitting all-time highs. So even though this virus was going on in mm-hmm. China and there was a little bit of spread, you saw that, that the markets here in the U.S. said, you know, we're not really that concerned about it. At the very end of February, all of a sudden, the market took a nosedive and just, you know, went off a, a cliff. And so, you know, at the time, we were trying to get our heads wrapped around it. In retrospect, we found out uh, through, through an article that there was actually a leak, that there was a, a think tank discussion, and members of the administration had basically said, yeah, you know, think, things are starting to trend in this direction in terms of what we're planning to do. And so the market got a whiff of this, and the insiders were able to sell off before Main Street, of course, because that's mm. you know, what always seems to happen in our quote-unquote free market. Um, and so you, know, you had uh, the Fed then come in and say it was going to stabilize the market and started providing support to the market before anything else was done. And I thought that that was fascinating. The most important thing they felt was to provide support to the market. So that kind of tells you all that you need to know. And then the administration came out with this 15 days to slow the spread plan, uh, which was absolute lunacy because it gave the blueprint to all of these governors to make these decisions. And Ohio was really early on, and you know, each governor thereafter kind of said, well, this provides us cover to do the same thing. And it started like with this slow power grab, almost like testing the waters, like, can we really get away with yep. this? And then they just said, oh, really, we can? Okay, we're going to do more, and we're going to do more. And that sort of ballooned up. And then the, the government had an opportunity at the federal level to throw a lifeline. So they were the ones that could have said, well, if you're going to do this, you know, we're going to backstop it and make sure that it's constitutional and make sure that we save these the small guys because that's what we're here to do. And they just chose absolutely not to do that. And anybody with half a brain cell could have figured out what was going on. Um, I had raised the issue in March of 2020 before we even knew the numbers because it was so transparent. But the way they structured the program, the first tranche of the PPP didn't even make it to the tiny small businesses. It went to Kanye West and Tom Brady and Floyd Mayweather because of the way the government structured it to begin with. So it was just kind of, you know, slow burn. Could we get away with it? And every time they got away with it, it you know, it's like the slow creep. It's like this blob that, that spreads and takes over everything. How much of this is related to... Um the Great Reset. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's this concept out there from the World Economic Forum, and it's their projections for 2030, so not that far in the future, saying things like, you will own nothing and you will be happy, which as as somebody who's uh, very focused on property rights scares the bejesus out of me, and and you would only have renters. And so, you know, that kind of ties into everything that's going on with the CDC moratorium on evictions, which again makes so much sense that a, a, a health organization would be setting economic policy outside of Congress, yeah. right? And that you've got these small landlords 
who are basically being thrown to the side, making it very difficult for them to keep um, the, the places or even want to keep the places and keep renting, knowing that the government can interfere in this direction at the same time that you've got all of this money going to big uh, professional investors who are coming in and buying up housing. So I don't know if this is uh, you know, happening at a global level on a coordinated basis or if they put this idea out there and others acted upon it here in the U.S., or if it's just a coincidence because Mm. at the end of the day, big entities want to grab power, and that's human nature, and that's why we resist central plans. I just want to go over what you just said because I I don't think people really understand. Right now, prices have gone up through the roof, 25 26%. Uh, for a new house and that's not just because all of a sudden we're buying again it's because the fed is making money so easy for big people to get that these giant hedge funds are taking the money with no real risk and they're buying up entire neighborhoods entire neighborhoods Yeah, there's actually a great article in the Wall Street Journal that came out in April talking about this, and uh, I believe it was a D.R. Horton um, neighborhood that instead of selling them to individual investors, they sold the entire neighborhood to a hedge fund at twice the price that they would have made selling it to the individuals. Why would they do do that? Why (laughs) would they do that? You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Several stories I still want to hit. Um, The teachers union head, um, Randy Weingarten, has uh, said they've got to get the kids back into school. And she has she has worked hard to she's pledging that the kids are going to come back to school you know as soon as they negotiate the vaccine ma- mandates uh and other uh, covid-19 mitigation strategies but as soon as they do that they are ready um you know she says the the combination of vaccines i think are a big game changer and uh and it's good but so many kids aren't able to get the vaccine so they have to have the mask mandate mandates you know, in schools, in schools, then there has to be, you know, test and trace and track and we have to have good ventilation. Uh, we can't be expected to go back to work like the rest of America and do that. Um, and she says, you know, I, I we you know, our teachers just want to see more proof on these vaccines and they want to hear from their doctors. And um, and that's why we have to negotiate these. Also, um, you know, she reiterated um, her uh, union's commitment on teaching political agenda, uh, you know, called history. Um, She said the history that, uh, you know, they're now producing is patriotic. It's patriotic for students to uh, analyze truth from propaganda. And uh, we're just giving them context to analyze what's going on these days. And they'll have their own opinions. But they need to know what slavery was. They need to know why we have the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment. Uh, You know, we need to know the reasons uh, for the causes of the insurrection on January 6th. And it's our obligation to teach the causes of January 6th. So let's just teach them honest history and accurate history and let them draw their own conclusions. And by the way, uh, stop trying to bullying teachers to keep them from teaching the truth. 
Um, critical race theory is not being uh, uh, taught in K through 12 students. Hmm, that's weird because that's the opposite of what she said several times um, in Virginia. An elementary school shared on its website and then removed a radical educational vi- uh, video in uh, during the summer that suggests police are dangerous to be around. Now, uh, again, this is an elementary school. This was for kindergartens uh, classes and students. Uh, and uh, in the clip, woke kindergarten uh, uh, safe. I feel safe when there are no police. Hmm. That's that's uh, that's weird. That's weird. Now, a lot of people are standing up again against it in Virginia. They've just about had enough of it. Um, and we're watching those parents and what's happening in Virginia. Uh, but there's also a mom that is in Rhode Island, and she just wanted to know what the teachers were going to teach her daughter. Well, it has been interesting uh, to watch. We've had her on before, and, uh, you know, they they said, well, we can give you all of that information. But I think it was seventy five thousand uh, dollars to be able to get all of that information. They had to charge her that just to tell her what they were going to teach. She uh, didn't do it. And now the uh, teachers union is now suing this mother for asking questions about CRT, the curriculum at her daughter's school. We decided we would talk to her attorney, uh, general counsel from the uh, Goldwater Institute, John Riches. Hello, John. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So I can't believe this story. It gets more and more bizarre and completely out of control. Uh, she yeah. she asked for some documents. They first centered documents, said she has to pay $9,000 for them, all almost entirely blacked out, like it's a Pentagon paper. Right. Yeah, I mean, this is this is truly one of those, this can't be true types of um, cases. Yeah, as you said, at first, all she did was ask her superintendent, what are you going to teach my incoming kindergartner? And is it, is it going to include things like critical race theory? Instead of just answering her questions, they channeled her into this formal legal process where they stonewalled her, told her they were going to charge her thousands of dollars. And then, as if that wasn't enough, the NEA, uh, the National Education Association, a $300 million a year organization, filed a lawsuit against her simply for requesting these records. It's just an astonishing assault on open government, on parents' right to know what their kids are learning. So this isn't, John, I don't know how you look at this, um, because this is much, much more than a lawsuit against a a, a mom. This is is game-changing if this is allowed to stand, right? I, I view it that way. I mean, look, I mean, just just on the legal side, this is nonsensical. It turns the public records law on its head. These laws were meant to open government up. They're meant to protect the public. They're not meant to be used against the public. But yeah, I mean, this is this is a real brazen assault um, on parents everywhere. I mean, and it, I think what it shows, um, Glenn, look at this group has so much money. Do they have nothing better to focus on? Like, maybe perhaps educating our students than harassing and intimidating parents. It's a pure harassment uh, technique. This union doesn't care about kids. They don't care about the parents. They care about driving a, a radical political agenda. So they're, they're saying that uh, they had to sue her 
because of the sheer volume of requests and concerns about teacher privacy. So they're saying they're protecting the teacher's privacy. Well, yeah, I mean, here's what's interesting about that. That's not the way the public records law works. I mean, typically what happens is a member of the public will submit a records request and then the government entity, in this case, the school district, will review the request. If there's anything in there that involves private information, and by the way, she didn't request any private information. She requested public information about public teaching duties. But if anything is in there that's included in an email string or something like that, the government entity redacts it, takes it out and produces the records. Here you have a third party that's not even part of the public records process coming in and saying, no, no, I'm going to sue to stop you, records requester, from getting public information. If this is allowed to stand, um, it, it completely inverts the presumption of transparency in the way public records processes work. So you, I mean, this is the kind of stuff you do for a living. Odds that this actually even makes it to court? I, I do not see this uh, getting very far in court. I mean, we are going to immediately um, move to get this uh, this uh, thrown offensive out. case thrown out. And then what? How do we I mean, how do we get access to our own children's information? We're still pursuing. Uh, so we have so we have sort of some parallel options as well. We're still pursuing the underlying records and we're going to get answers to Nicole's questions. I mean, she has a right to know what her daughters uh, would be taught and and we're going to find that out. So, you know, we're going to do that through the public records law, through the open meetings law. We're going to hold this district accountable and we're not going to stand for this union uh, special interest. How how how? I mean, this is so pervasive now. We have the CDC writing laws about, you know, renters and landowners. This is, if that's allowed to stand, the Department of Education can write its own laws. Uh, every administrative office can start to do that. And it, it doesn't seem to be getting better. Uh, the, uh, I mean, how, how convinced are you that our our courts are going to handle these things the way they should. Well, we spend a lot of time thinking about this problem, Glenn, this problem of the administrative state of unelected bureaucrats creating the law, interpreting the law, enforcing the law. Look, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school civics, I learned that we got three branches of government. The legislature creates the law, the executive enforces it. But when you have things like the CDC creating rules, investigating the rules, enforcing alleged violations, you have one branch of government making all the decisions. And that's not the way separation of powers works. I think there's all sorts of legal opportunities out there to challenge this this sort of overreach. Many of these cases are moving moving through the process. I think we have a very good U.S. Supreme Court that gets the problems of uh, administrative law. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of uh, positive developments in this area. The, the optimistic side of me believes that this is an area that's, that's very ripe for reform. We're talking to John Riches. He's general counsel for the Goldwater Institute that was started uh, by Barry Goldwater, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a trust that he started. Um, and, uh, and John, you know, you say there's a lot of opportunity but are there the attorneys out there that are looking for this fight? I mean, uh, I've talked about it on the air before. We had one of the best First Amendment right attorneys. I've had him for 20 years. They just dropped us because it will cause too many problems with other clients that they have. 
Uh, yeah, I mean that is that is an unfortunate that is an unfortunate case where that comes up frequently in in private practice. Look, if, if we want to look on the bright side of this, Glenn, there there are an enormous amount of public interest groups. So private organizations like the Goldwater Institute, like the Institute for Justice, Pacific Legal Foundation, you name it, that have lawyers on staff that take cases uh, specifically. Um, dedicated to limited government protecting individual liberties, um, I think that I think that that is a very positive development. But look, we need more than that. We need private sector lawyers willing to take these cases on and not be afraid of the consequences to clients or whatever misperceived public appearance issues they think uh, might be might exist. This kind of stuff where you're being sued by the NEA uh, that scares regular parents then it makes them go I, I i don't want to get involved in all of this i i just i just want to keep going what advice right. do you have well i mean that that is exactly why the nea did it right it's the, the process is the punishment my advice and it's uh, i think it's difficult but um it's to be tough to stand up uh to ask questions we all deserve a right uh, we all have a right to know what our parents are going to learn. We all have a right to know what our government is up to. Nicole uh, Solis, our client, is an incredibly tough, dedicated um, uh, person. She's not going to take no for an answer. She's going to keep the fight going. And it requires uh, active, actively engaged citizens like that to, to get these sorts of answers and to hold our government accountable. John, thank you very much. John Riches, General Counsel for the uh, Goldwater Institute. 